The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Taking the Turn to Treatment Innovation in Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma, Real-World Insight on Integrating Antibodies and Cellular Therapy into Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GWN 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning. I would like to welcome everybody to taking the turn to treatment innovation in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, real-world insight on integrating antibodies and cellular therapy into patient care. My name is Greg Novakowski. I'm a lymphoma physician at Mayo Clinic Rochester, and I'm joined here by our panelists, and I would like them to introduce themselves. Hi, good morning. I'm Paolo Paimi from Cleveland Clinic. Hi, good morning. I'm Peter Rydell from the University of Chicago. So this is a very exciting time in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. In fact, for us lymphoma physicians, this ash is about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and we are very excited to see some uh, new uh, treatments and uh, new results being presented at this meeting. If we look at the current situation in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, this is the most common subset of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, both in U.S. and around the world. Uh, this is an aggressive uh, lymphoma, which typically is treated with chemotherapy in the front line and has relatively poor outcomes at the, in patients who have relapsed disease. This has been, has, has been done a plethora of different characterizations molecularly of diffuse RBC lymphoma. The categories which are associated with uh, poor prognosis are typically double-hit lymphoma, triple-hit lymphoma, and ABC, or non-GCB subtype of diffuse RBC lymphoma. But there are many more molecular classifications. Some of those will be presented at this meeting as well, which show that there are specific molecular clusters which could be associated with worse prognosis as well. So molecularly, this is a very heterogeneous disease. Despite progress, until recently, the five-year relative survival for this lymphoma is about 60%. Uh, this has to do with the fact that upfront, we're only able to cure about 50 to 60% of the patients, and majority of the patients with relapsed disease, unfortunately, have quite poor prognosis. This was uh, well shown in a so-called um, uh, uh, study by Dr. Crump, Scholar 1, and which look at the outcomes of patients with relapse and refractory diffuse B-cell lymphoma. And you can see that in this pooled analysis, median overall survival was about uh, six months uh, for patients. And in a different subset analysis, both event-free survival and overall survival were quite poor. Those results provided a momentum for development of new therapies in the relapse refractory diffuse B-cell lymphoma. And those new therapies now are moving to earlier lines of therapy. So, in the last uh, several years, we had seen a number of those therapies being granted accelerated approval uh, by FDA. And uh, you can see uh, them listed here. Doncastixumab tesiterine targeting CD19 is now um, FDA approved for treatment of patients uh, in a third line with relapsed and refractory diffuse B-cell lymphoma. Uh, Polatuzumab vedotin uh, targeting CD79B. Uh, is also approved in combination with bendamast and rituximab uh, based on the randomized study, which showed improvement uh, in uh, overall response and progression-free survival. We'll talk about this more later. Uh, tafacitumab, uh, targeting CD19, is now approved in combination with lenalidomide in the lab's refractory diffuser B-cell lymphoma, uh, starting from the second line and beyond. Uh, 
And finally, we have uh, three CAR T-cell uh, products listed here, both targeting C19. So there are a number of options for patients with relapse and refractory large cell lymphoma, and those options are being evaluated in earlier lines of therapy. Now, what's really exciting about this meeting is that uh, there will be some results presenting this movement to earlier lines of therapy. And the first one, which I would like to get, uh, draw your attention to, will be a Polaric study, which we presented uh, during the uh, late-breaking abstracts uh, sessions on Tuesday. Uh, so in Polaric study, patients with previously untreated diffuse herbicide lymphoma, adults uh, with IPI 2 and 2.5, um, were randomized to polatuzumab plus RCHP uh, versus RCHOP. Uh, and the uh, therapy was for six cycles with additional two uh, cycles of rituximab, as you can see in this schema. The primary endpoint of the study was progression through survival. And what we know from the abstract uh, was that the study met its primary endpoint in terms of the progression-free survival, uh, and there was also benefit in event-free survival and disease-free survival. Um, so far, it appears to be no difference in overall survival, but we'll see the details uh, of this uh, during the presentation. So this is the first randomized phase three study which met its primary endpoint in this um, uh, setting. And it will be fascinating to watch how introduction of platuzumab the dotting to first-line therapy could affect choices in a, a second line and beyond. Uh, for example, platuzumab vedotin is frequently in use in a, um, in a second line, particularly in bridging patients to CAR T-cell therapy. So will this use continue? Will it be equally effective? And what will be the adoption of this new possible standard of care in a frontline setting? Um, uh, we'll also uh, have to see. It appears that there is a trend towards uh, more significant benefit of this uh, therapy in patients with high RPI, and this will be another interesting discussion during the meeting. There are some other um, uh, phase three trials ongoing as well. Uh, this one here is called FrontMind. Uh, very interesting design, so it randomizes patients with a high-risk diffuse herbicide lymphoma, so IPI three to five, uh, to treatment with uh, lenalidomide and tafacitumab plus RTROP versus RTROP alone. So a doublet uh, versus RTROP alone. Now, tafacitumab and lenalidomide, as I mentioned, is approved as a doublet in lapse refractory setting. So it makes sense to move this doublet to upfront uh, therapy. And uh, previous uh, randomized study, uh, EG1412, show possible signal of benefit of addition of lenalidomide alone. So here, additional of this doublet uh, is really uh, promising. What's also interesting about this study is that it's really focusing on high-risk patients. So this is the first study, to my knowledge, which caps the time from diagnosis to treatment, trying to capture the patients with rapidly progressive disease, uh, where there is really a room for improvement in terms of the progression-free survival and overall outcomes. In the second line, the major developments at this conference will be obviously a CAR T-cells. Uh, so uh, both Zuma 7 and Transform results we presented at the meeting. You can see the uh, um, abstracts uh, there. And those studies have shown that um, proceeding directly to uh, CAR T-cell therapy could be superior to standard therapy with uh, salvage chemotherapy and local stem cell transplantation. There's a third one, uh, for, there's a third one study which uh, uh, Peter will mention uh, which was actually negative, and comparison of those uh, studies will be very informative in how do we select patients for next-line therapy.
So again, uh, this is an extremely exciting uh, uh, meeting for all of us who are treating diffuse cerebral lymphoma. And the good news for our patients is that we have now more therapies, and those effective therapies in refractory setting are moving rapidly to frontline setting. So today's agenda, we'll have um, uh, clinical consult sessions. We'll first discuss antibody therapy in refractory diffuse cerebral lymphoma, including C19 and bispecific antibody approaches. Um, and they will present the latest and on a rapidly emerging future of CAR T cells in diffuse RB cell lymphoma. And then we'll touch on the issue of how do we sequence those therapies and how do we ch choose those therapies now when we actually have a choice in this uh, setting. Thank you very much for your attention. I'll pass it to Paulo. Good morning. Um, so we'll just go straight into the first case. There you go. So we have a Relatively typical diffuse large B patient that we have to treat. So Ellen is a 72-year-old woman. She was diagnosed with a diffuse large B NOS. Uh, she's advanced stage disease, a disease involving the bone, liver, with a high risk. Um, and it has some comorbidities that are not that uncommon in patients this age with atrial fibrillation, some diastolic dysfunction, and moderate COPD. She gets uh, pathologist uh, testing, shows that she's a germinal center subtype, She's not a double hit. Um, we treat her with R-CHOP times six cycles, and for the sake of the subsequent discussion, she doesn't tolerate it all that well. Um, she has a couple of admissions for febrineutropenia, COPD decompensation, but she's able to complete it. She achieves a complete remission, and then she goes into follow-up. Because this is a relapsed uh, talk, uh, she ends up having a relapse within the first year. Uh, she presents with systemic symptoms with a weight loss uh, over a month. Uh, she's got a worsening performance status. Um, she has some B symptoms. And she gets another PET scan that shows that she has diffuse disease involvement of the marrow. She's got liver involvement. She has a bone marrow biopsy that shows that she has involvement by diffuse large B. So we have a, a relapse patient um, early in you know, borderline performance status, borderline tolerance to frontline chemotherapy. So the first part of the discussion in, involves well, what kind of patient is that eligible for transplant and how do the, the, the comorbidities affect your eligibility and does the cardiac and pulmonary disease uh, make, the, make a patient ineligible. And I think in general, not all cardiac and not all pulmonary comorbidities make you ineligible. Borderline function, the decreased or borderline uh, DLCO, decre uh, uh, decreased FEV1 are significant risk factors for having pulmonary complications of transplant. Um, cardiac complications, particularly a decreased ejection fraction with heart failure, make a patient much less, much less ineligible for a transplant and knowing that they're going to have a rapidly increasing risk of having acute toxicities from the transplant. Um, the additional thing is that there's a, some component of a gestalt when it, comes to, when it comes to choosing a patient for transplant who meets the number criteria, it's in the middle of, uh, this, of their 70s, so theoretically could go forward with transplant but hasn't tolerated chemotherapy well and has, has borderline performance status going on to salvage. That patient in general would not be taking it to transplant. And I think in a patient who has a COPD uh, who probably doesn't pass well their um, their uh, spirometry testing on the LCO would be somebody who we would probably not take to an autologous transplant and consider them ineligible for salvage chemotherapy after that. Um, now, 
the discussion is whether these patients are eligible for CAR-Ts, and I think we can uh, say that the, the eligibility for CAR-T cell therapy tends to be somewhat broader than that for autologous transplant. Um, if we're able to manage the acute toxicities, um, they tend to tolerate it relatively well. Um, I think we can all agree that the, to the, the tolerance of, um, of the conditioning regimen is very easy when we do CAR-Ts, with uh, usually it's low, low doses of fludarabine and cyclophosphamide, um, except for myelosuppression, and if we're able now to manage CRS very well um, and kind of catch it very early, in general, patients don't require intensive care as much, um, and they don't need too much support. But here the question is, in a patient who is in, second, in requirement of a second line, uh, who really cannot go for transplant, what would be the role of novel antibodies and antibody-based therapy in the second line here? Now, what are the potential next steps? Tafacitamab and lenalidomide are approved on the stage. Polatuzumab and rituximab is approved for third line. The U.S. is used in second line as well. Uh, it's, used in, it's approved in second line uh, in Europe. And the question also is, could you use salvage chemotherapy without consolidation for a transplant? And we know here the salvage chemotherapy in general, even in patients who have uh, a, a have eligibility for transplant, we know, and we can discuss a little bit further, that their performance of salvage chemotherapy is relatively poor. Whereas in the front line, you'll have a significant number of patients that have disease control with chemotherapy, chemoimmunotherapy. In this line of therapy, and particularly as somebody who relapses within the first year, we know that the performance of salvage chemo is borderline. And here we'll see, so after a patient gets a frontline therapy, about two-thirds of the patients won't be cured and won't require subsequent therapy. More than, more than a third of patients will, will have relapse refractory disease, and those patients will need second-line therapy. On fit patients, we consider them for uh, platinum cells, platinum, platinum-based salvage chemotherapy, and a proportion of patients will be chemosensitive and that will proceed to transplant, and a proportion of patients will be chemoresistant, and right now they're considered for other salvage therapies, including CAR T-cell therapy. Now, the proportion of patients here is inverted, where the, patient of who, the patients who are chemosensitive are appro approximately a third to 40%, whereas those who are chemoresistant are about two-thirds of patients. Um, now, for patients who are less fit, uh, who are really not eligible for platinum-based therapies, uh, who have comorbidities, or who can really tolerate uh, transplant or are post-transplant here, the role of novel antibodies enters. And there are multiple novel agents. Several of them are approved. We have polatuzumab uh, as an antibody drug immunoconjugate uh, that targets CD79. We have two, tar two agents that are targeting CD19 with tafacitamab and longcastuximab tesidine. And then we have multiple other agents that target uh, surface markers on the surface of B cells, including ROR1. Uh, CD30 has a role in, in diffuse large B cell lymphomas that have CD that are CD30 positive. And then we have CD20, which is a good old uh, target, and we you know, have ignored rituximab on this slide, but you know, we still pay allegiance to it. Um, and CD20 is definitely an important target on the surface of, uh, of the B cell that we use consistently. There are other potential T cell targets and checkpoint uh, markers that have a role in um, a potential role in the treatment of, of diffuse large B cell lymphoma, including TIM3 
PD-1, PD-01 have been less validated but may have a role. CD-137, TIGID is another one. And as well as a macrophage target, including SIRP-alpha. In addition to this, we have uh, another way that Dr. Nowakowski will talk about, which is using bispecific agents that combine the use of the targeting CD3 and targeting CD20 so that we can bring T cells to act upon the uh, surface market of, uh, of the B cell. And these are several that are coming. You will see them throughout the meeting today, but include um, glofitamab, mosunetuzumab, plamotamab, odronextamab, and epcoritamab. And I'm just trying to show off that I can say their names. So starting with tafacitamab. Um, tafacitamab is a glycoengineered um, antibody which is essentially has an enhanced FC portion, so it has a better capacity to engage, engage um, effector cells uh, to kill the cancer cell. And essentially, you have enhanced antibody-dependent uh, cellular cytotoxicity as well as antibody-dependent cellular phagocytosis. And there's also direct cytotoxicity by the antibody itself. So you have the, the effector cells that kind of participate in this process are the natural killer cells as well as the macrophage. Now, there's a rational combination in the use of lenalidomide in addition to tafacitamab, and that's because the mechanism of action of lenalidomide is not just direct cytotoxicity, but increases the numbers of NK cells and activates the NK cells. So essentially, it's giving a larger pool of effector cells and activated effector cells for the activity of tafacitamab. And you can see that probably we will have both direct, and direct cytotoxicity from both agents as well as direct cell effects against the, the cancer cell. L-MIND was a phase two single arm open label multicenter study that evaluated the combination of tafacitamab and lenalidomide for patients with relapsed refractory diffuse large B. Um, it included patients who had had one to three prior regimens who were considered not eligible for transplant, um, who are prime, uh, excluded patients with primary refractory, and also patients who had double head lymphoma were excluded. Uh, patients received uh, an induction uh, regimen with tafacitamab uh, that was more frequent than the first month and then less frequent than the second month, uh, and then went on to get tafacitamab twice a month uh, from cycles four to 12, and then lenalidomide was given throughout the first year, um, monthly from days 1 to 21. On patients who had uh, a stable disease or more or better, they went, proceeded to receive continuation of tafacitamab uh, twice a month until they progressed. The primary endpoint was uh, overall response rate. Uh, median follow-up of the study at the time of reporting was 17 months, but we've had several updates that we'll see uh, later. Uh, with secondary endpoints, including PFS, the uh, duration of response and overall survival, as well as safety. Um, you, the overall response rate was 57% for the whole population, with a complete response rate of 40%. And you'll see, because patients could have had one, one prior line of therapy only at the time of enrollment, that the performance of Tafarlen um, after one line of therapy uh, was significantly superior for those who were, were superior to those that had uh, had more than one line therapy, as could be expected. But in patients who had one prior line of therapy, uh, the complete response rate of 47 percent, 
and the partial response rate of 20%, 20%. For an overall response rate of 67%, there's a, the, the dot here is moved, so it's 60, almost 70% almost response rate uh, for patients who are treated with tafalent after one line of therapy. Remember, these are patients who are not double hit or not primary refractory, um, but they're under transplanted eligible, so certainly an underserved population. Um, the median overall survival for patients with one prior line of therapy was 45.7, but also importantly, the median duration of response was 43.0 months of the latest uh, update. Um, for those who had had two lines of therapy, the response rate was the complete response rate was 32 percent, uh, and then the median uh, overall overall response rate of 47.5 percent. Um, it had the duration of response hadn't been reached, but then again. Uh, for the whole population, you do have a relatively long duration of response for this patient population who, in general, didn't have another option before. And here the update occurs, and you see how particularly patients who achieve a complete response after treatment with, uh, with tafacitamab and lenalidomide have very good survival curves and progression-free survival curves, um, which appear to show that you can sustain your response for a, period, a prolonged period of time. Now, Dr. Nowakowski here will be presented at this ASH the comparison of, of real-world outcomes for patients who had tafalen and those who had other agents. And you can see here that in comparison with other agents that are used in the second and third line, um, the patients who are treated with tafalen have improved overall survival as well as improved response rates um, when compared with R-squared, which is a regimen that we need to use, or uh, polatuzumab, bendamastin, rituximab. Right. So, um, so uh, what are the practical considerations on a patient that gets um, tafalen? So we, we talked about um, the, the early relapse for, her, for the patient, uh, and here the main questions are, A, using the appropriate dosing over cycle of the first cycles, and looking at the schedule, uh, and uh, talking about proceeding to monotherapy, as well as monitoring for some of the toxicities that you can see. Now, when you look at the scheduling, and this is important to consider before you're starting a patient on this regimen, is you know, to give, give, give the patient an idea of how often they'll be coming, and particularly the first, the first couple of months. And you'll see that patients will be getting their lenalidomide uh, for, the first, for three weeks out of the month, uh, and then that they will be getting uh, a tafacitamab loading that will be twice the first week, and then they'll be getting it weekly for that first month. Uh, so it will be five visits on the first month. And on the second month, they'll be getting it weekly. Once that is completed, throughout the first year, patients will be coming more cycles four to 12. So, sorry, cycles two and three will be twice, uh, four times a month. And then from cycles four to 12, they'll be coming twice a month for their tafacitamab infusion and continuing revlimid. If they achieve anything more than stable disease, uh, they can continue monotherapy with tafacitamab twice a month. So it's, it's an involved uh, uh, schedule, particularly in the first three months of treatment. The most frequent toxicities were primarily hematologic, and you see here that neutropenia of all grades happened in 50% of patients, with the majority of those patients having neutropenia that was uh, grade three or more. Um, patients had other uh, hematologic toxicities, but in general was relatively well tolerated, and high-grade hematologic toxicity other than neutropenia was not frequent. 
The other non-hematologic uh, toxicity that was reported on patients was also having uh, rash with, uh, with, with uh, tafacitamab um, and a little, little mite. Uh, one thing to consider, and I think I've seen in my own practice, is that patients who tend to be heavily pretreated, like some of the patients who are treated, tend, tend to have more uh, hematologic toxicity than those who are receiving on the front line. So a patient like Ellen, who may be getting it after first line, may actually tolerate this a little bit better, may not have significant hematologic toxicity. Um, and again, of course, once uh, lenalidomide is discontinued and patients continue to monotherapy, the severity of adverse events was decreased. Now, how about using repeated tar uh, agents that target CD19? And there's a case report that will be that's presented or showed by Dr. Sakemura during this ASH, and talks about a patient that received uh, CAR T targeting CD19 after uh, receiving tafacitamab lilumab. This is a patient who had dose-adjusted RE for their for their uh, for their lymphoma in 2013. Then in 2015, received RIs. Um, times three, uh, had disease control for a couple of years, and then had, uh, in October 2017, had l uh, times seven cycles, was on stable disease, proceeded to receive additional salvage with Gemox, so multiple rounds of chemotherapy, and subsequently, in 2018, received uh, CAR T cells and was able to have a long-lasting sustained remission, although uh, complicated by the de development of acute uh, or transplant-related acute myeloid, treatment-related acute myeloid leukemia, and dying from that disease or low remission from, uh, from uh, the lymphoma. So at least this case suggests that you can give CAR-Ts after tafacitamab, and I think some of us have been doing that in practice when we see patients that have persistently CD19-positive CD disease after treatment. So a practical summary, tafanilumumab is an option for patients who are transplant eligible who relapse after the initial therapy with diffuse RHB. Um, keep, keeping the schedule in mind because there's frequent visits for the first few months uh, and patients can continue on the tafacitamab uh, if they don't relapse beyond 12 months. Um, the safety profile is relatively well tolerated, uh, primarily with initial hematologic toxicity, more in patients who are heavily pretreated. Uh, and patients with response have a chance of long-term disease control. So moving forward, so Ellen gets treated. Um, we put it for the sake of discussion. She was treated uh, with folatuzumab uh, bendamastine because we hadn't had this talk yet. Uh, and she, uh, a second line, and she relapsed after one year of treatment. Um, one of the barriers to receiving CAR-T is that it has, needs to be done in a specialized center, and she needs to stay within the proximity of the center for about a month, and she declines that, considering that she has more advanced disease and she's got comorbidities. So she's kind of ruled herself out of CAR-Ts. So after two relapses, what are the options for a patient who's transplant ineligible, really CAR-T ineligible, out of, because of social support or, trans, or transportation issues? Do we sequence to non-castuximab? Do we use something else? So oh, on the third line of subsequent, moving forward. On the third line of subsequent therapy, the approved agents include um, the CAR-T, um, anti-C19 CAR-T cells, including naxicaptogen, silolo cell, lysocaptogen, maralo cell, and tisagenlec leo cell. And then I'm again, I'm showing off that I can say them. Um, and they also include longcastuximab testing after two lines of therapy, as well as selinexor. 
Now, longcastuximab tacitine is an antibody drug immunoconjugate, and it comprises a humanized anti-CD19 antibody, um, which is different than the antibody on the, F, uh, the FM63 that is in CAR-Ts, um, that is conjugated to a pyrrolobenzodiazepine dimer. Now, the mechanism of action uh, long constructional binds to CD19 is internalized, uh, the linker is cleaved, um, and the PVD dimers are released that have a cytotoxic um, activity, primarily by DNA cross-linking. In the phase one, we saw that there were multiple patients that responded at different doses, um, and we showed that it was, per, it was fairly active in diffuse-large B-cell, it was very active in diffuse-large B-cell lymphoma and other, and other uh, lymphoma subtypes. Um, the, the recommended phase two dose was 150 milligrams per ki micrograms per kilo um, that was tested in subsequent phase two trials with a dose de-escalation plan um, that was in included in the, in the phase two that we'll see later. And you see that in the phase two, where patients get a, get a loading dose of 150 micrograms per kilo, um, the infusion is over 30 minutes, um, they get this on the first two cycles, and then after cycle two, they get 75 micrograms per kilo up to 12 cycles uh, every, three, every three weeks. Um, and then they continue to follow up on the Lotus II, which is a phase two study of this, uh, of longcastuximab. 145 patients were enrolled in the study. Um, they had had more than two lines of prior therapy. Um, and the group of patients included patients of both throughout risk. It included double head patients, it included transformed lymphoma patients. Uh, and these were because it was beyond two lines of therapy, included patients who had transplant before this. The overall response rate in the total population was 48%. And the median duration of response at the time of reporting was 10 months. Um, you see here that for diffuse starch B cell lymphoma, um, the response rate was. 50.4, uh, um, with 26% of patients uh, having partial response and 23.6% of patients having a complete response. A smaller group of patients with high-grade B-cell lymphoma had, uh, had a 45% response rate. Uh, they were all complete responses. So the median duration of response at the time of reporting was 10.3 months. It was updated later up to 13 months as continued follow-up um, in, in, in the responding patients, 13.7 months. Um, we see here that on the astrated population, uh, 35 patients had a complete response with a 24.1 uh, complete response rate. I will be presenting uh, at ASH this, uh, this year the overall response rate of 46% of patients in this study uh, of patients who had had prior CAR T cell therapy. So we did include within this trial patients who had progressed after CAR-T. Now, part of the eligibility was that you had, if you had had prior CD19 targeting agents, that you had to have a CD19 positive disease by biopsy. We see here the curves uh, in, in patients of different risk. You see double, triple hit patients um, were responding as well, including but also patients with transformed disease. Um, older patients had good response rates as well as patients who had, had, had failed to respond to frontline therapy. And this, this slide is primarily to, primarily to illustrate that the activity of longcastuximab appears to be fairly comparable among patients who are high risk. And here are the overall uh, survival curves, uh, sorry, the overall progression-free survival uh, curves in patients, and you see a patient with complete response who are able to su sustain disease control for a prolonged period of time. 
Now, in terms of the safety, the most common grade, grade three or more uh, treatment adverse events were uh, neutropenia, uh, thrombocytopenia. There was an elevation of gamma glutamyl transferase that primarily uh, occurred independently of other, other uh, transaminases. So patients really didn't have any other evidence of hepatic uh, dysfunction. And in general, was not associated with many clinical manifestations. Um, you also saw anemia. Serious adverse events were reported in 57 of the 145 patients. Now, when you prescribe longastaximab, there are certain, um, certain logistical considerations that include using steroid premedication that definitely decreases adverse events. It was established in the phase one. Uh, and we, do, we give dexamethasone on the day preceding the treatment, uh, day of treatment, and then the day after treatment. And if the patients forget to take their dose at home of dexamethasone, what we do is usually premedicate them with intravenous dexamethasone an hour before uh, getting their, getting their longastaximab. Um, there, there's important, it's important to remember that there are certain adverse events uh, beyond those of hematologic toxicity. The gamma glutamate transferase increase is of unknown clinical significance. It's not, uh, not associated with uh, liver, uh, liver function test increase, but it's something to keep on monitoring when you're giving this drug. Um, some of us observed edema and, inf and effusion, so it's important to have the patient monitor the weight, uh, report them when they're increasing more than one or two pounds per day. Um, management included the use of diuretics, um, primarily the use of spironolactone with or without loop diuretics. Uh, and the additional thing to consider is that beyond developing rash, patients did have photosensitivity. <clears throat> So we generally recommended patients to avoid the sun, use sunblock, uh, and, and try to prevent them from uh, being out in the kind of sunnier, part, uh, sunnier times of the day exposed to the sun. Now, because Lonka has activity as a single agent, further combinations are being studied, um, and abstract 54 will, will show uh, the initial results of LOTUS-3 of Lonka-Stuximab in combination with Ibrutinib in relapse and refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, thank you, Paolo, for this um, excellent uh, overview of uh, antibody and antibody drug conjugates in the treatment of relapsed refractory large cell lymphoma. Definitely a very important agent with favorable safety profile and simpler logistics than CAR T cell therapy, which we'll talk later about. Uh, so this is huge development and broadly uh, used in the clinic. So if you're excited, if you're excited about antibody therapy, and if you're excited about CAR T-cell therapy, which will be a subject of the third talk, you cannot, you cannot be not excited about bispecific antibodies because those are the ones which are bridging those therapies in a very unique way. And I think a lot of us are thinking that those antibodies will play a major role in the management of patients with relapsed refractory diffuser B-cell lymphoma and maybe even move to earlier lines of therapy. So before we move to the session on CAR T-cells, I would like to briefly uh, presents short overview of bispecifics. So the concept is relatively simple. So the antibody is bispecific, so targets uh, target on malignant B cells, typically CD20, although CD19 and other targets also can be engaged, and CD3 molecule on a T cell. So it brings the cytotoxic T cell in the proximity of the tumor, just like this would happen with the CAR T cell therapy, and this results in a cell death. Now, one of the first agents developed in this space was actually bilinatimumab, which was start getting C19, and it was not a full antibody. So the idea was to bring 
the T cell in the real proximity of malignant B cells. But unfortunately, uh, this resulted in a relatively short half-life of this drug, which uh, logistically is more difficult to administer. Uh, but then it turned out that just bringing them with the full antibody in the proximity was enough to induce the cell death. So the new antibodies, by specific antibodies, have longer half-lives, which, is ma which make, makes it uh, logistically much easier to apply in the treatment of patients with relapsing refractory uh, lymphomas. The other exciting uh, development about this strategy is that uh, there is a possibility here for combination with other therapies, which may not necessarily see uh, with CAR T cells. Um, with CAR T cells, escalation, adding additional agents, particularly after lymphodepleting therapy, could be difficult. Uh, but here, you actually have opportunity to add additional agents, maybe uh, immunomodulatory agents uh, or other immunostimulants uh, to this therapy as well. And there are several of those uh, drugs in evaluation. Um, we expect that uh, some of those will be coming for uh, approval in refractory DLBCL and other non B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphomas as well. I just would like to highlight, highlight the few key uh, data. Uh, so this is uh, uh, mosunetuzumab, or MOSU, uh, which showed efficacy in uh, patients with relapsive uh, diffuse B-cell lymphoma. Uh, this was uh, presented uh, a couple of years ago by Dr. Schuster in a plenary session. What's interesting about it is in addition to high response rates and uh, initial encouraging durability of response, there were responses seen in patients relapsing post-CAR T-cells, which is a particularly challenging uh, population to treat. Uh, at this uh, 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 ASH meeting, we'll see uh, additional uh, data suggesting that uh, the promising efficacy is sustained. In diffuse heart cell lymphoma, you can see a high response rate and uh, a high CR rate. And now the time-dependent endpoints are also available, showing that a lot of those responses can be quite durable. In addition, uh, this is the opportunity for combination here. So mosotizumab is combined with palatizumab uh, in the study, uh, which we presented on Sunday, I mentioned here. And this appears to be improving both overall response rate and uh, deepen the response of the higher CR rate uh, than by specific antibody alone. So it's a relatively small study, but definitely very encouraging and shows this proof of principle that those agents can be combined with other strategies. The other one which I would like to briefly mention is uh, glofitamab um, in perhaps uh, refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Again, this is a T-cell engaging antibody. It actually has an interesting structure with uh, bivalency for CE20, which actually opens the opportunity for targeting at the same time with other CE20 targeting antibodies, a particularly rituximab or, or similar antibodies. The uh, early studies showed, uh, uh, again, very encouraging for single agent response rate of about 50%, uh, with uh, approximately 30% uh, uh, of the patients achieving CR. And this was particularly true about the cohort, which was uh, uh, treated uh, above the 10 milligrams, uh, where you can see that their CR rates have even increased. And there will be an update that ASH uh, presenting uh, uh, ex expansion cohorts. And again, that this agent could be combined with palatuzumab vedotin as well, with um, improvement in overall response rate and CR rates. Uh, obviously, it's very early on, so I have to see how durable those responses are. Uh, but those results are extremely promising and shows, again, the feasibility of combination of bispecifics with other antibodies or therapies. Epcoritimab uh, is another antibody being developed in this space. Uh, it is a humanized um, antibody. Uh, it is actually 
administered uh, uh, subcutaneously, which allows avoid um, peak cytokine uh, levels and then decrease the risk of severe CRS. Uh, so this makes it logistically easier and observation easier as well. Uh, it appears to be a very promising way of administration for bispecific antibodies for that reason. Um, the initial study, similarly to other bispecifics, showed higher response rates in relapsed refractory diffuser B-cell lymphoma. And you can see that uh, those response appear, responses appear to be quite durable in, in patients as well. Uh, so a very promising approach. Uh, what's true about all those bispecific antibodies, uh, but particularly EPCOR, is that they do have a very uh, favorable safety profile. Uh, cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity can be seen, but generally it's a, a low grade, uh, lower than we typically see in CAR T-cell patients. Uh, there will be another abstract presented at this meeting, uh, which we look at the preliminary data from a small number of patients uh, combining EPCOR um, plus RCHOP. And in this setting, it appears to having uh, a safe, uh, favorable safety profile in high-risk uh, patients. And this is uh, providing basis uh, for design of the phase three study, uh, looking at abcortumab versus standard of care in patients with relapsed refractory diffuser B-cell lymphoma. So where will the bispecific fit in diffuse B cell lymphoma? They have certain advantages. They are available off-shelf in contrast to CAR T cells. They can be probably administered in the practices, local practices uh, versus specialized CAR T cell centers, provided there will be additional um, um, uh, management of, uh, cytotoxic, uh, of the cytokine release and other post-heterotoxicity uh, uh, guidance provided. We do expect that it will be likely FDA approved as accelerated approval in this space based on activity as a single agent. And for me, the most exciting part about this is that they can be combined with other agents relatively rapidly. So it took a while to move other therapies to, to the uh, frontline setting or a second line setting, but I think bispecifics will be actually penetrating this space uh, much uh, faster. Obviously, there will be a, a lot of unanswered questions uh, one will be a sequencing of the best therapy. So we now have CAR T cells, we have antibodies and an antibody drug conjugates we're just discussing, and now we have bispecifics. Which one do you start with? How do you combine them? Is sequencing of one versus the other affecting efficacy later on? Uh, those will be emerging questions, and it's very unlikely we'll be able to answer all those questions in the randomized studies. Uh, what's going to happen, we'll have to probably design very well conducted uh, real-world data studies. Some of them will be retrospective, some of those will be prospective. When we actually capture this information, uh, because the sequencing and choices will become increasingly important. So diffuse B cell lymphoma, we had this discussion earlier today, will become a, a little bit like myeloma. We have multiple ac active therapies, and how do you choose, how do you sequence, how do you combine, will be a pivotal uh, question. And, and of course, already mentioned that they will be moving into early li lines of therapy and particularly with bispecifics, where logistics are simplified and they can be easier combined, I believe, than CAR T-cell therapy, uh, we'll probably see this propagation to earlier lines of therapy uh, quite early in, in their development. I think I'll stop here and um, I will pass it to our CAR T-cell therapy, Peter. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Dr. Nowakowski. So. Uh, now we'll sort of switch gears and uh, discuss cellular therapy um, and how it's really changed some of the real-world practice. 
Um, so first we'll start with a case. Um, Alex is a 66-year-old gentleman um, with a history of uh, triple hit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Um, he demonstrates uh, the high-grade B-cell lymphoma phenotype with rearrangements of MYC BCL2 along with BCL6. Um, at diagnosis, he's stage four with a high IPI score of four. Um, he doesn't have any major medical comorbidities. Um, and as one of our standard treatment approaches, he undergoes therapy with dose-adjusted REPOC. Um, after three cycles of treatments, he undergoes an interim PET CT scan in order to gauge his treatment response, which at that juncture demonstrates a partial remission. Um, he then goes on to uh, receive further cycles of therapy, but unfortunately after five cycles of treatment does demonstrate both clinical and radiographic progression of disease. Um, and so, you know, in this uh, scenario in patients that's progressing on first-line therapy, um, one of our standard treatment approaches would be to move forward with second-line treatment approach. Um, and in a standard of care in that scenario would be the use of platinum-based salvage chemotherapy, as we alluded to on prior slides. Um, and so in this case, this gentleman was initiated on therapy with RDHAP. Um, and after receiving three cycles of therapy, unfortunately, does again have progressive disease, which uh, sadly is, is a not uncommon scenario in patients that uh, receive platinum-based salvage therapy, where we typically see response rates um, around the 40 to 50% range. Um, in, in his favor at this juncture, he does have a favorable performance status of zero to one. Um, and so, you know, the, the next questions would be is, you know, what are the next steps in this gentleman's treatment, um, having now failed induction therapy and having failed platinum-based salvage therapy? Um, I think some of the things that, that, you know, would go through a clinician's mind are, you know, if this patient is thought to be a candidate for CAR T-cell therapy is what sort of the trajectory of this patient's disease? How aggressive is it? Um, how sick are they at this juncture? Um, and, and how easily can we get them to CAR T-cell treatment? Um, as, as many treating clinicians uh, that, that provide CAR T-cell therapy are very intimately aware, uh, this is the therapy which there are some logistical hurdles to overcome, um, including assessing the patients, getting things like insurance approval, um, being able to solidify collection dates and other things like that. And so it's really important to be cognizant of how rapidly progressive their disease is uh, and the patient's performance status when kind of aligning them for this treatment. Um, there are certainly some instances where patients may require therapy prior to even embarking on CAR T-cell treatment, if that's the goal, in order to kind of stabilize their disease, collect their T-cells, and then potentially provide further therapy to bridge them to that treatment approach. Um, and so this kind of brings us back to our, our treatment algorithm here. Um, and if we can kind of focus in on looking at uh, second line treatment where um, this gentleman would fit, um, he had already undergone platinum-based salvage therapy and unfortunately was chemo resistant. Um, and then in this scenario, you know, CAR T cell therapy would certainly be a strong consideration. Um, 
And so in the, the realm of CAR T-cell therapy, we now have three FDA-approved agents. We have uh, axi-captagene cellulosal, or axi-cell, which was approved back in 2017. Uh, in uh, 2021, we had lysocaptogene marilusal, or lysocell. And then in 2018, uh, the FDA approval of uh, T-cell or T-cell for aggressive large B-cell lymphoma. Um, this slide goes over uh, kind of differences between the, the CAR T-cell constructs. These are each evaluated in the, the context of uh, uh, pivotal clinical trials. We have the Zuma-1 study evaluating AxiCell, the Juliet trial evaluating T-cell, and then more recently published the Transcend trial evaluating Lysacell. Um, each of these products differ um, in, I would say, many degrees. Um, one of them is uh, the fact that they do demonstrate or do uh, have different co-stimulatory domains um, where the uh, AxiCell product uses a CD28 co-stimulatory domain, whereas the two other products uh, use a 41BB. Um, but there are also differences in, in the trial design um, in terms of the, the patients that they enrolled. Um, we can see differences in terms of prior utilization of autologous stem cell transplant, which was less commonly utilized in the Zuma-1 trial and more commonly utilized in the Juliet and Transcend studies. Uh, additionally, when, when sort of doing uh, cross-trial comparisons and, and trying to look at the data here, it, it's also important to recognize um, how these patients were managed on study. Um, and so patients that were in the Zuma-1 trial, uh, bridging therapy was prohibited outside of the utilization of corticosteroids, whereas patients in the Juliet and the Transcend studies were permitted to receive bridging therapy um, uh, and, and therefore that may allow a better uh, temporizing of their disease while awaiting manufacture of their product. Um, we can see here uh, that there is also some differences in terms of those that were collected for CAR T-cell therapy and then those that actually received CAR T-cell therapy. Um, and some of these differences are um, you know, contingent on uh, the turnaround time and the manufacturing capabilities that were inherent during the, the time that these trials were conducted. Um, particularly the uh, Juliet trial, there was uh, a longer vein-to-vein -vein time or turnaround time for the CAR T-cell product. Um, and in many respects, that did lead to some dropout of patients um, where 76% of patients actually were treated uh, compared to higher uh, proportion um, in the uh, other accompanying studies. Um, but based on the results of these pivotal trials, we now have FDA approval of three agents in the third line setting. And so just to kind of discuss some of the practical aspects of CAR T-cell therapy. So um, first would be you know, identifying an eligible patient for uh, CAR T-cell therapy. And as I referenced, um, it's currently FDA approved in the third line setting. So for patients that have failed two or more prior lines of therapy. Um, it's also uh, important for, for clinicians to be cognizant that uh, the use of CAR T-cell therapy um, you know, may not be uh, in the patient's best interest should they harbor some uh, concerning features like active infections or autoimmune diseases. Um, and particularly with active infections, we've seen instances where there uh, is higher degrees and severity of cytokine release syndrome uh, in patients that uh, undergo that uh, therapy while uh, currently um, experiencing an active infection. And so in these instances, certainly consulting with uh, infectious disease experts and adequately managing the infection with antibiotics and, and other um, uh, agents is appropriate.
Um, also with CAR T-cell therapy, this is a, a treatment that's currently only operationalized at larger academic medical centers and, um, and, and kind of slowly making its way into um, you know, some more uh, smaller non-academic centers. Um, with this, though, that certainly does require a referral, which does take time in order to establish care, solidify appointments. Um, following uh, referral to an academic center, the patient would undergo collection of their T-cells, um, and then they would be shipped off to the manufacturer where they would undergo engineering to become CAR T-cells. Um, following the return of the CAR T-cell product to each of the treating centers, the patients would be conditioned with lymphodepleting chemotherapy, which is typically given in the flavor of cyclophosphamide in combination with fludarabine, given for three consecutive days, followed by two rest days, uh, and then the infusion of the CAR T-cell product. Um, there are also some inherent toxicities related with CAR T-cell therapy, and, and we kind of alluded to, to some of these uh, in the prior slides with uh, the bite agents. Um, some of the more prominent toxicities that we see with this treatment approach include neurologic toxicity along with cytokine release syndrome. Um, in general, these toxicities uh, both manifest and in many respects resolve uh, within the first two weeks or so after uh, infusion, um, but certainly they require a very dedicated management strategy um, and being very vigilant in order to recognize the, uh, the development of these toxicities. Um, we do have now FDA-approved agents to also treat these toxicities, specifically tocilizumab, uh, which was FDA-approved at the time of oxycaptogenesilalusal uh, uh, for patients with cytokine release syndrome. Neurologic toxicity is also one of the other inherent toxicities with this, which can um, present in varying ways, but um, in, in many respects, uh, confusion, uh, word finding difficulties, tremor, and in, in some respects, seizure activity as well. Uh, and the mainstay for therapy in that would be corticosteroids. Um, there are now established grading and management guidelines um, through a number of societies, including the ASTCT, along with the NCCN, um, which can be um, you know, looked to in order to, uh, to have some guidance in terms of managing these toxicities, although in many respects, uh, toxicity management is, is institutionally dependent. Uh, following uh, CAR T-cell therapy, there is also long-term monitoring and follow-up for these patients. Um, the FDA does mandate that patients are followed for a minimum of 15 years after their CAR T-cell infusion to evaluate for any long-term toxicities, uh, development of secondary malignancies, and things like that. Um, but that would also be uh, monitoring for relapse and recurrence. Um, and relapse and recurrence are things that we more commonly see in the first 6 to 12 months following uh, CAR T-cell treatment. So now we'll circle to discussing some of the evidence behind, uh, behind CAR T-cell therapy in aggressive large B-cell lymphoma, and this will largely be uh, evaluating the data that was presented from the pivotal clinical trials. Um, so the ZUMA-1 study was the first published um, back in, in 2018, um, and then an update uh, with longer-term follow-up in the uh, Lancet Oncology article from Fred Locke was published in 2019. Um, we can see here that uh, AxiCell is, is you know, a highly active agent in the third-line setting, um, leading to complete response rates close to around 60% in patients, uh, median duration of response in this population of 11.1 .1 months, um, and median overall survival has not been reached. 
Um, and I think specifically if you're looking at the progression-free survival curve here, um, it's uh, segregated between those with complete partial uh, responses and those with stable disease. And I think really encouraging uh, here is we see that there's a flattening of the curve with time. Um, and, and certainly we need longer-term follow-up in a lot of these studies, but that does suggest that you know, with a single infusion of this type of therapy that we may really garner long-term benefits uh, in a subset of patients. Um, this looks at uh, further update of data, and this is uh, data that's uh, gonna be presented at a uh, abstract um, tomorrow, um, which looks at longer-term follow-up greater than five years in patients that received AxiCell. Um, and again, uh, we can see here really uh, a pretty flat curve here, and, and the majority of the events that we're going to see in terms of patients um, uh, are, are going to be in the relatively early time frame within the first six to 12 months, um, and then uh, a minority of events occur following. Um, for your overall survival, um, as previously reported, 44% among patients treated with this product. Uh, the Juliet trial was uh, a trial which had a slightly different design, um, but uh, enrolled a very similar patient population um, and evaluated the activity of TCGN-like leucil in patients with uh, relapsed refractory large B-cell lymphoma after two prior lines of therapy. Um, and again, we can see here on the left uh, the Kaplan-Meier curve, which evaluates uh, progression-free survival, again, segregated based on uh, patients achieving a complete response at three and six months, uh, along with the overall patient population. Um, and again, those patients that um, achieve a complete remission are associated with uh, the best outcomes overall. Um, and we can see here the 24 and 36 month progression-free survival are 33 and 31% respectively. Um, and I think it's really encouraging that with further follow-up, um, you know, these responses do seem to hold in a subset of patients. Um, and among all responders, 60% um, were estimated to retain their response at uh, the 24 and 36 month uh, marks, respectively. Moving on to the uh, Transcend study, this is uh, one of the more recently published studies in the, uh, the Lancet in, in 2020 uh, by Jeremy Abramson and colleagues uh, evaluating the activity of lysocaptogene marilusal or lysocell uh, in a very similar patient population. Um, we can see here, again, very high overall response rate of close to 70% and a complete response rate of around 50% uh, in this population. Um, duration of response um, rate at one year was 55%, um, which is really encouraging for the total population. And then specifically, if we look at those patients that achieved a CR, 65% of those patients are still in response uh, at one year time. Uh, again, uh, arguing that you know, there is certainly some uh, durability with this therapy, and we see a similar trend with flattening of the curves with time in patients achieving a CR. Um, in terms of those that achieve a partial remission, some of these patients will be destined to fail therapy, um, but there is also dynamic responses in CAR T-cell therapy where we can see with time, uh, some patients may actually revert to a complete response and uh, be on this curve here. This looks at uh, further follow-up from the uh, Transcend study uh, in terms of progression-free survival on the left and overall survival on the right. Um, median follow-up with this uh, PFS curve here is 12.3 uh, months and uh, overall survival of 17.6 months. Um, and again, uh, achieving a CR associated with the best responses here 
um, and, uh, and also very favorable overall survival uh, as seen. Um, and this uh, abstract will be presented on Sunday, um, which again um, helps to really solidify some of the durability of this uh, product, including a two-year duration of response of uh, 49% and progression-free survival of about 40%. And so if we circle back to the uh, clinical case here, again, with uh, Alex, a 66-year-old gentleman with triple hit lymphoma, um, he had now failed our EPOC therapy, was initiated on our DHAP therapy, and unfortunately demonstrated progressive disease to that. Um, you know, the, the questions to kind of pose would be is, you know, what are the next steps, uh, you know, in this case? Um, is CAR T-cell therapy a reasonable choice for this gentleman at this juncture? Um, and, you know, if uh, one of the things that, that I would say is, you know, certainly when we're evaluating patients for CAR T-cell therapy, one of the things that we look at closely is, is performance status and then also, as I mentioned, the trajectory of a patient's disease. Um, and I would argue in this, in this gentleman's case, the fact that he was moving forward with platinum-based salvage therapy, there was eventually a plan, should he have responded to that platinum-based salvage therapy, that he would move on to a consolidated autologous stem cell transplant. So, um, you know, as referenced in prior slides, he didn't have uh, significant medical comorbidities, and, and therefore, you know, considering CAR T-cell therapy, I think is a very reasonable option um, in this gentleman's case, um, as he does appear relatively fit. Um, uh, as Paula did mention, though, um, you know, eligibility for CAR T-cell therapy is ne not necessarily the same as eligibility for autologous stem cell transplants. Uh, and in many respects, we are able to get uh, patients that may be ineligible for uh, a consolidative auto through CAR T-cell therapy without, uh, you know, some of the significant uh, toxicities um, and, and uh, especially um, the myelosuppressin that we see with, uh, with autologous stem cell transplant. I think one of the important things to, to also highlight here is that, you know, time is, is unfortunately not on our side when we see these patients with primary refractory disease. Um, this gentleman has now failed, you know, two different regimens um, and, and has an aggressive disease course. And so really trying to refer this patient to an academic or a treating center for CAR T-cell therapy um, at, at the first opportunity is really important. Um, I personally advocate for actually referring patients for CAR T-cell therapy at the time of first treatment failure, uh, even before embarking on second-line treatment, um, because that really gives the treating centers the ability to kind of navigate the process a little bit easier, um, you know, to, to be able to apply for insurance approval for things like autologous stem cell transplant should they respond, but also giving us the ability to pivot to something like CAR T-cell therapy should their PET scan not be favorable and we need to switch gears. Um, if the patient is less fit, um, there are also consideration of instituting things like bridging therapy um, and, uh, and other treatment modalities um, if their decline in fitness is thought to be a consequence of the lymphoma and therefore treating the lymphoma may make them a better candidate for therapy. And that would be something like uh, pre-bridging therapy, if you will, prior to uh, collecting the patient for CAR T-cell treatment. So now we'll talk a little bit about some of the real-world evidence uh, with CAR T-cell therapy. Um, so, you know, now that we've had uh, three CAR T-cell products approved, um, there's a growing body of evidence on the utilization of this therapy in the real-world setting. Um, and certainly when we have 
products that are FDA approved um, and now as, as treating clinicians, we're the ones making the decision on whether the patient gets CAR T cell therapy or not, as opposed to needing to abide by some of the strict inclusion and exclusion criteria, that there can, in many respects, be different patients that are enrolled and, and treated with CAR T cell therapy as opposed to those that were treated in the context of the pivotal clinical trials. Uh, and this is a study by Loretta Nostopil and colleagues that uh, looks at the use of uh, standard of care axicaptogen and silalusol in patients with relapsed refractory aggressive large B-cell lymphoma. Um, and in this study and, and in other studies have also shown that, you know, in the real world, approximately 40 to 60% of patients who go on to receive commercial CAR T-cell therapy would actually not have been candidates for the pivotal clinical trials. Um, but that being said, uh, we see that a lot of, in, in many respects, the outcomes are very similar to those noted in the clinical trials. And, and I think that certainly, um, as, as treating clinicians, uh, pushes us to really expand the eligibility criteria and to be able to provide this therapy to more patients, um, as we've seen that, that we are able to, to glean similar outcomes um, in terms of efficacy, but also in terms of safety. Um, this also looks at um, some of the other interesting factors that were from the, uh, the Nostopil study, um, looking at uh, the impact of some baseline characteristics in terms of efficacy with, with CAR T-cell treatments. Um, and I think it's pretty striking here if we look at these two curves in terms of progression-free survival uh, based on ECOC performance status on the left and then uh, LDH on the right, um, that patients that go into CAR T-cell therapy at the time of lymphodepletion that have a preserved performance status actually do better. Um, and additionally, those that uh, have an LDH, which is within the normal range, uh, also seem to do better. Um, and in sort of my interpretation is, is that, you know, both of these markers really, I think, are, are markers and, and reflective of, of patients with rapidly progressive disease. Um, and therefore, you know, I, I would certainly not exclude these patients from this type of therapy, but um, it's something to, to potentially use cautiously in that patient population. Um, and, and I think also does push us to, um, to try to potentially develop better bridging therapy options in order to, to better temporize their disease during that time frame in order to make them better candidates for, for CAR T-cell treatment. Uh, this is data um, which I actually presented back at ASH in 2019, looking at uh, the standard of care use of AxiCell and TisaCell in centers that had the ability to prescribe both therapies. Um, and we see a similar story here in terms of progression-free and overall survival in the use of AxiCell and TisaCell compared to the pivotal clinical trials, which again uh, is reassuring that the, the utilization of this therapy uh, in a population of patients which may not be candidates for the uh, clinical trials, uh, we're seeing very similar results. Um, there are a number of barriers, as I alluded to, though, to the delivery of cellular therapy in the real-world setting. Um, and, and factors that, that may certainly limit its use include things like disease progression. Um, and it's, it's very important to be mindful of, of a patient's disease and, and, and their burden of disease prior to moving forward with CAR T-cell therapy. Um, certainly, there is a degree of time that it takes to see the patient in consult, to get insurance approval, to collect the patient, and to uh, have the product manufactured before the patient actually gets treated. Uh, and so it's important to be cognizant of that and institute bridging options if needed in order to temporize the disease and get them to that point. 
Um, also, of course, infection is something relevant, and, and I mentioned in prior slides, may predispose to higher grades of cytokine release syndrome. Um, patients that are typically receiving CAR T-cell therapy are pretreated with a minimum of two prior lines of therapy, and in many respects may be treated with more lines of therapy, and therefore uh, may be at higher risk of infection given their uh, deficits in their immune function. Um, there are also manufacturing failures, which are unfortunately a reality uh, in the real world where you know, a patient's product may not meet specification, um, may need to uh, be treated in the context of a uh, uh, expanded access protocol, or there may be um, just complete failure uh, of manufacturing where the patient may need to be collected a subsequent time, uh, which again adds more time to their uh, treatment. Um, and then lastly, of course, there are socioeconomic barriers. Um, this is a treatment which is currently, as I mentioned, provided uh, almost exclusively at uh, larger academic medical centers, and therefore um, that does require patients to commute to the academic medical center. Um, they are required to stay for 30 days following the infusion, um, which does require local housing and, and could put other strains on, on resources as well. Um, and so really, you know, additional strategies are needed uh, in order to get more patients to uh, CAR T-cell therapy with large cell lymphoma. So kind of circling back to this clinical case, uh, Alex, after failing uh, our DHAP therapy, still has a preserved performance status of zero to one. He's referred to a specialized CAR T-cell treatment center and eventually does undergo collection, manufacturing, and treatment with CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, his course is complicated by grade 2 cytokine release syndrome, which is demonstrated by the evolution of fever, along with hypotension, which is responsive to fluid boluses, uh, which occurs on day 4 following treatment. Um, and now we'll kind of talk about the next steps with therapy. Um, in terms of cytokine release syndrome, we now do have, uh, as mentioned, uh, a number of management algorithms. So CRS and neurologic toxicity are, are sort of inherent toxicities with cellular therapy. Um, and these are things, as we discussed in, in prior slides, can be seen with CAR T-cell treatments, can also be seen with bispecific uh, therapy as well. Um, CRS is thought to result um, from the expansion of these uh, CAR T-cells um, and the associated cytokine and chemokine milieu uh, and can result in things like fever, hypotension, uh, and hypoxia, I would say, are the, the most common symptoms um, and those that certainly drive treatment decisions. Um, but we can also see other more serious side effects, including uh, cardiac events such as arrhythmias and cardiac arrest, renal insufficiency, along with capillary leak syndrome, which can uh, be associated with hypoxia. Um, when we look also at neurologic toxicity, I alluded to this on prior slides, that can present with things like encephalopathy, delirium, confusion, and agitation, um, but in more serious or severe cases can also present with things like seizures, uh, aphasia, and uh, in rare instances, cerebral edema. Um, the schematic on the right gives you a, an understanding of kind of the evolution of these toxicities. Uh, we start here on the left-hand side of the curve with the CAR T-cell infusion. Uh, cytokine release syndrome typically demonstrates early uh, after the infusion of CAR T-cell therapy, uh, in this case, the meaning of two days. Uh, neurologic toxicity typically presents later, although there are certainly instances where we can see uh, cytokine release syndrome and neurologic toxicity occurring concomitantly, uh, which does require a little bit of a nuanced treatment strategy. 
Um, this patient was then treated for CRS and had resolution at day eight, um, and then uh, resolution of neurologic toxicity later on. Um, and then around day 28, uh, underwent their imaging evaluation. So in terms of CRS, I'm just gonna kind of go over this at a high level. Um, there are uh, management algorithms for how to approach this. Um, typically for lower grades of cytokine release syndrome, uh, the management is largely symptomatic um, with managing with uh, things like acetaminophen. Um, but if patients have more prolonged uh, cytokine release syndrome, there's certainly a consideration of things like tocilizumab and potentially even the corporation of dexamethasone if they have refractory fevers. Um, as we experience more serious or severe grades of CRS in things like hypotension, hypoxia, and if that becomes more serious, uh, requiring uh, vasopressors or higher degree of supplemental oxygen or potentially even mechanical ventilation, our treatment algorithm is a little bit more aggressive, including tocilizumab and dexamethasone. And then we typically are also increasing the dose and frequency of these medications as we go down the treatment paradigm. In terms of neurologic toxicity, um, similarly approached here where typically grade one is monitored, whereas more uh, serious grades were instituting treatments. Um, and the mainstay of therapy with neurologic toxicity would be the utilization of corticosteroids. So circling back to uh, this case here, um, after undergoing CAR T-cell therapy, uh, the patient develops uh, CRS and is successfully managed with tocilizumab and dexamethasone. He undergoes uh, restaging imaging, um, which in many institutions occurs at day 30, um, which in his case demonstrates a complete response. Um, and then on subsequent follow-up, he's still in a response at the six-month timeframe. And so now we'll talk a little bit about uh, the future of CAR T-cell therapy um, and allude to some of the studies which will be presented in the upcoming uh, days at ASH here. Um, and so one of the things that uh, I wanted to, to kind of discuss is, you know, assuming this patient wanted to pursue high-dose therapy and auto-stem cell transplant, what are the next steps? Um, and knowing that, you know, we're, we now have three uh, pivotal trials which uh, have been present, are going to be presented really at this ASH meeting, um, how, how would we potentially approach this patient in the future, you know, should there uh, be a, an approval of, uh, of CAR T-cell therapy in the second-line setting? Would we stick with standard of care, uh, high-dose chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplant if they're responsive, or, you know, is there a, a role for CAR T-cell therapy in the second-line setting? And, and we'll uh, be discussing some of the results of the three uh, clinical trials, we have the Belinda trial, which evaluates TCGN like Lucille compared to high-dose chemotherapy and auto stem cell transplant, Zuma-7, similar uh, trial uh, where it compares uh, AxiCell versus uh, standard of care, and then the TRANSFORM study as well. Primary endpoints in all three of these studies were event-free survival. Um, so this is a late-breaking abstract, which, which will be presented by uh, my colleague, Dr. Bishop, on Tuesday. Um, and as of uh, May of, uh, 6 of 2021, 322 patients were enrolled and randomized in this study. 162 were uh, randomized to the study arm with T-cell and 160 to the standard of care arm. Uh, median follow-up of 10 months. Um, in this study, patients underwent a disease assessment at the six-month time frame, or six-week, pardon me, time frame. 26% uh, of these had progressive disease uh, in arm A and, and close to about 15% in arm B. 
Uh, the median EFS uh, in arm A and B was about three months. Um, and as you can see here, no statistically significant difference. Overall response rates also very similar in both of these, uh, along with the CR rates. Um, and so this study uh, unfortunately failed to meet its primary endpoint, um, which is a, a difference compared to the other two trials that we'll present, although there are certainly differences in trial design, um, which are important to, to recognize and, and, and interpret. Um, and unfortunately, given this venue, we're not going to have the time to, to go through some of those subtleties. Uh, the second study that I'll go through is the Zuma 7 study, which evaluated AxiCell versus standard of care. In second line, this was a positive study and will be a plenary session on Sunday. Uh, the primary uh, endpoint in this study was event-free survival, um, and it was met um, with close to about two-year follow-up. Median EFS was significantly longer in AxiCell versus standard of care, 8.3 versus two months respectively. Um, and we see here uh, the Kaplan-Meier estimates at 24-month EFS were significantly higher with AxiCell. We also saw a higher response rates and CR rates with AxiCell compared to standard of care. Um, and although immature at this point, there is some sense that the median overall survival uh, is improved uh, in patients, although we certainly need longer follow-up to better determine that. Um, AxiCell also was associated uh, with uh, improvement in quality of life, and this is another abstract which will be presented at this meeting. We can see here, based on the varying time points, that uh, quality of life did appear to improve earlier in patients with uh, AxiCell compared to standard of care therapy, although there may be some leveling off as patients get further on in their treatment course. Uh, and lastly of all, we'll uh, discuss the TRANSFORM study, which compared Lysacel to standard of care, high-dose chemotherapy, and if responsive, an autologous stem cell transplant in the second-line setting. This was also a positive study. A um, little bit shorter follow-up in this study, um, and, uh, but we see, I would say, compared to the results in the Zuma 7 study, relatively similar results, event-free survival, uh, improved here in the lysosel arm. Uh, overall response rates also higher in the lysosel arm compared to standard of care, and again, progression-free uh, survival additionally. And so in terms of take-home points, now we have multiple CAR T-cell constructs, three that are FDA-approved in the third-line setting after failure of two or more prior lines of therapy. Um, these have each uh, produced really impressive overall and complete response rates in patients with relapsed refractory aggressive lymphoma, uh, with around 35 to 45% of patients having durable responses. Uh, encouragingly, we see uh, similar results in the real-world population with manageable toxicity profile with supportive care and collaboration with treating centers. Uh, and this does really set the stage for moving CAR T-cell therapy earlier in the treatment paradigm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, for this very uh, exciting, very practical overview. Um, so I will now move to the question and answers. We receive a number of interesting questions, and I'll pick on you, Peter, actually, to start with. And uh, you didn't want, I know that this is, will be a much longer discussion, probably beyond the 10 minutes which we have, but if you could, in one minute, hypothesize or speculate why those studies are different in the second line, what are the key differences or what we should be paying attention going to those presentations to? Absolutely. That's uh, a great question, and I, I certainly agree 10 minutes is not sufficient, but I will do my best. Um, so each of the studies uh, did evaluate, uh, in terms of a primary endpoint, event-free survival, um, although the event-free survival was defined slightly differently in each of those studies. 
Um, the TRANSFORM study along with uh, the Belinda study um, did collect patients' T-cells prior to them embarking on uh, either standard of care or the CAR-T arm, and, and certainly there's some inherent delays in instituting therapy um, that may have impacted outcomes um, in the studies. Um, particularly if we look at the Belinda study, in that trial, patients um, were moved forward in the standard of care arm with a platinum-based salvage uh, regimen. Um, but if they didn't demonstrate a response sufficient enough to move to an autologous stem cell transplant, uh, the, the protocol actually um, sort of prompted physicians to challenge them with a, uh, a different um, platinum-based salvage regimen. Um, and so that wasn't actually considered an event in the study. Um, although, you know, we know that, you know, approximately 40 to 50 percent of patients are not going to respond to, to those uh, treatments. And so that may also have kind of played into some of the, the results where we see, um, you know, uh, some equivocal results uh, in, in terms of uh, the, the differences in overall response rates and CR rates between that study compared to the others. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, moving on to the antibody therapy, Paul, I have I promised to ask you about, do you assess C19 at the type of relapse, particularly after cartesis? And there's a question, if, if the C19 is still present, do you have any preference for the type of a C19 uh, targeting, like long cutafa or any other approach? Well, I think it depends because the mechanism of action is different, right? I think that you can, you can think of, um, of TAFA as an immunotherapy when using, using uh, the combination with lenalidomide to enhance the activity of the cell, but you're really using immunotherapy pure and it's, there's no cytotoxic, direct cytotoxic effect. Lung, on the other hand, has a cytotoxic effect. And, then, and I think that the activity that we see post-CAR-T suggests that it's a different mechanism of action that you can rescue people who have, yeah, as long as they have persistent CD19, you can target it. The additional thing to consider is that most of the CD19 targeting agents uh, kind of are based on the FMC, FMC63 and, and antibody and targeting, whereas lung is a little bit different, so humanized, and it targets a different epitope. So maybe shifting epitopes may, may be able to rescue you. Uh, so I, you know, I have more experience with lung in general, and I tend to think it's very active. I think that it may be that it depends on the patient where you it depends on the clinical setup more than the mechanism of action that you're doing so if you have somebody on the first on the first line in combination maybe an agent where you want to use more of an immunotherapy based regimen where you, or or if you want to use a single agent maybe lonca works a little bit better so i think it's the clinical setup where you will have i think the nice thing is that you have three different strategies. So the question will be, will we ever have a CD19 20 by specific? And then we're just going to have four different strategies to target CD19. So we're going to have to like really use it with a lot of, with a lot of, uh, I guess, a pause to choose which one, which one goes. Thank you. Uh, going back to Peter, uh, so you showed us that CAR T-cells could be used much more in the future than we're using it even right now. Uh, how do you see transition from the specialized centers to community? Is it reality? Or do we have to just move towards bispecific other approaches in those patients who cannot get to those specialized centers? Um, I certainly think that this is a therapy which could be moved, um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily the community, but, but certainly I would say smaller centers. Um, you know, right now it's, it's uh, instituted in, in fact accredited larger academic medical centers, but um, there's certainly a push to, to using this as an outpatient. 
Um, and as we were able to, to use it more as an outpatient to understand the, the toxicity and, and, and how to manage that, uh, I think we're becoming much more comfortable with it. Um, I think the other thing to consider is, is that, you know, in the context of the clinical trials, we were managing patients based on protocol-based treatment algorithms for each of the toxicities. Um, and that was very early when we started doing CAR T-cell therapy. I, I remember when I was actually a fellow, and this is dating me, um, where we were petrified about using steroids in patients with CAR T-cell treatment because we were concerned that we we're going to kill the CAR T-cells. And now, you know, it, we're not even blinking an eye in using those. So I think as, as we gain more experience and knowledge about how to manage these toxicities, that certainly this could be a therapy which could be operationalized in a smaller setting. Thank you. Can I interrupt me? I say just, just for a question. If using steroids in CAR-T is dating Peter, uh, we were, when I was a fellow, we were talking about r 14. So I guess that answers <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> it shows the progress and rapidity yes. of development in this field. Question to both of you. How do you see MRD coming into play with development of those therapies? Very brief answer. I'll start from uh, Paul. You know, I think that uh, advanced testing in general is coming. Right, and I think advanced molecular testing for classification will be coming. We're seeing the first tip. I think the next, this 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 uh, this meeting. Uh, I think advanced response testing is also coming, and I think MRD. Uh, it's starting to be very well validated. I think we have to have better ways of predicting who's going to stay in remission, um, and I think that it will be important because I think we're seeing also that CAR-Ts, if you achieve MRD early, and if you see even MRD testing at the seven-day mark, I think we saw in a couple of, our, our, of studies that were presented, uh, published this year, uh, patients who achieve very early MRD have excellent prognosis, and, you, and we know they're going to be part of that patient that's going to achieve early remission and is going to stay in remission. So I think they're, they're going to be, we're going to become part of the standard where we have testing our patients, the question is, which MRD testing are we, are we going to use? Are we going to use Clonoseq or we go some, uh, some other methodology, maybe more sensitive or easier to apply? Thank you. Peter, your take, and, um, and, and let me extend it. Would this help to move the CAR T cells to the front line? Very good question. Um, so I think, you know, certainly MRD testing, um, my hope is, is going to have a larger role in this. Um, you know, there's certainly many scenarios where um, we're relying on PET scans in order to evaluate patients' response, although, you know, as treating clinicians, we also recognize that PET scans are fraught with difficulty. Um, there's many um, false positives in those, and, and MRD testing can certainly be very impactful in that to better understand a patient's, um, you know, response. Uh, and then, as Paula was alluding to, you know, the uh, change in the disease burden through time can really also give us an understanding of, of how effective these therapies are. Um, and, and I think, you know, if we look at the, um, the utilization of, of MRD testing, potentially even uh, earlier in, in the treatment paradigm of, of patients undergoing large cell lymphoma, then certainly if we see someone that may be, for example, MRD positive after uh, a, a treatment approach that may not actually have clinically apparent disease, then you know, I, I think uh, one could envision a role for a consolidative CAR T-cell treatment in that setting in order to um, you know, really solidify a remission. Um, and, and I think specifically there is some data to suggest that CAR T-cell therapy may be particularly active in those with no evidence of disease, so that may be a really appealing scenario. Thank you. 
We're on the top of the hour. There are some questions we couldn't accommodate, but feel, feel free to ask after the session. Those are probably one of the two most approachable speakers you can imagine, okay? So please don't hesitate to stop them and ask additional questions. And uh, I would like to give a round of applause for both speakers for their excellent overview. And I would like to thank all of you for your attention and participation in this uh, early hour. And I wish you the best uh, during the meeting. I think it's for lymphoma. This is an extremely exciting meeting. We tried to, to direct you to some of the abstracts which we uh, thought were of interest. There are many more. Um, and uh, uh, we'll uh, hopefully reconvene next year with even more progress uh, in diffuser B cell lymphoma and all the other subtypes of lymphoma. Thank you again for your attention. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GWN860. This activity is supported by educational grants from ADC Therapeutics America, AbbVie, and GenMab US Incorporated, Insight Corporation, Kite, a Gilead company, and Morphosis U.S. Incorporated.